it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have a very special episode. Tonight, we have two of our friends from the Canadian Investor, the top Canadian investing show, and actually one of the best investing shows out there, period, wherever it is in the world. So we have our friend Braden, who's been back a few times, and then we also have his partner, Simon Bellinger, with us tonight. So they're here to talk to us about investing and share with us some of their wisdom. Well, hey, guys, you want to say hello and uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on? Dave, thanks for the intro and the kind words on the show. Thanks for having us on. Like you said, uh, yeah, me and Simon do host the Canadian Investor Podcast. It's everywhere you get your podcast. We talk about Canadian businesses, U.S. businesses, things we see in the market, and uh, happy to chat tonight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks for having us on. Uh, really excited to be here. Obviously, I, I've listened to your podcast quite a few times. And of course, the times that Braden's been here, excited to be here and talk about uh, some of the, the things we look at when we look at specific companies. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Why don't we dig into that? So you guys recently did an episode that I thought was interesting on investment checklists. And checklists are nice for investors, no matter if you're beginner or advanced, because it can ground you and make sure you're thinking of the different parts of buying the stock. So can you, either one of you, start with what would be some of the first good ideas for somebody who is trying to build a checklist? Sure, I can start. The first thing I will definitely look at is probably the easiest thing to look at when I find a company. I'll look at the market cap. So for those of you who are starting out, the market cap is basically what the value is. So you simply take the number of shares outstanding and you multiply it by the share price and then you get the market cap. The reason why I like to look at the market cap is just an easy metric to quickly look at and get a sense of how large the company is. Obviously, it may be different depending if it's a company that's a bit more value company versus a growth company. But for me, that's always the first thing I'll look at just to get a quick sense what I'm dealing with. Yeah, that's a good one. Can you give ranges of this is a market cap that's big, this is smaller, and what's somewhere in the middle? Yeah, so that's really subjective. Obviously, if you look around, you'll see uh, different types of, of people with different ranges. But I would say from the most part, a small cap is probably anything under a couple billion dollars. I would say that's probably what most people would agree on. You can get even smaller than that under $500 million. A lot of people consider that even micro cap. Mid caps, I would say probably $5 billion to I don't know. It's a uh, 30, 30 billion is probably the, the number I have in mind. 
when it starts getting bigger than that, then you're starting to get in pretty large cap businesses and then miss a lot of them. If I didn't mention the mega caps, so we're thinking here about the, the companies in my mind that are three, four hundred billions plus all the obviously the trillion dollar club would fall into that as well. Yeah, there's obviously different type of businesses that will found, fall in different categories of those market caps. So is there a range that you stay away from or is there a range where you're like, oh, this is my sweet spot or is it just more, let me just get context on this business and then move forward? Yeah, I would say it's just getting context on the business. And I'm sure Braden will talk a little bit about that, but he believes that a lot of big tech is undervalued. And you're looking here at businesses that are pushing a trillion dollars in market cap and the reason why they tend to be undervalued for a lot of people is because they're still growing so quickly. Um, so it's all relative. You can have a smaller company that would have a couple billion dollar in market cap, but it's really not growing at all. It's all relative. I think I'm not, I usually tend to stay away from like the micro or nano caps. So like anything under a couple hundred million dollars, I don't really invest in, but anything else, if I like the business I'm open to. Yeah, I think that's well put. When it comes to market cap, it's very arbitrary, but it's helpful to get some context around right out of the gate, the size of the business today on the stock market, what it's valued at, and what the opportunity may be in the future. Now, obviously, it can be inherent to safety based on the the market cap, but now you're seeing companies push 2 trillion in market cap. I think Google's a few billion away from from 2 trillion in market cap. Apple's beyond that. Facebook's now worth over a trillion and Amazon's 1.75 trillion in market cap. So you can see that potentially these companies are already so big, can they get bigger in the future? So it's a, it's a good metric to look at right out of the gate when it comes to how big is the business we're dealing with when we're going to start doing some research. What would be the next step after we got a sense of, okay, this is how big the business is. What's the next good thing to look at? For me, it's revenue growth, for sure. It's the top line of the business for a reason. It is that sales number coming into the company. And look, it's fun to get all complicated with funny accounting and and fancy numbers like free cash flow, which is incredibly important. But at the end of the day, I want to know if the company is growing that top line in sales. And that's really important. Are they growing it consistently over time? How? What are the numbers looking like recently, quarter over quarter? And this is important, right? Because if you're running your own business, obviously you want sales to increase. It is the top line of all cash flow that will come into the business is through that top line. So right out of the gate, I want to see some revenue growth personally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what I would look at. The second thing is revenue growth. And keep in mind too, depending on the type of business that you're looking at, you may want to average out that revenue growth. If you're looking at more of a cyclical type of business, it doesn't mean it's a bad business. It's just a different type of business. But obviously we love businesses that will consistently grow the top line. That's uh, always a big plus. I don't know if we've talked about this before, at least recently, Dave, you can cut costs and that can increase earnings, but you can only cut so much. Uh, At a certain point, you have to increase revenue. Otherwise, you're not going to get growth. Yeah, that's exactly right. Domodoran talks about that all the time in his class that you can cut costs to a certain extent, but after that, you're done. You can, you still got to have the CEO and somebody to turn on the lights. And then beyond that, you can't cut anymore. So do you guys have a do you guys have a minimum that you look for revenue growth? If you see a company that you really like but it's only growing at 4%, is that a or are you looking for the the 20-30 in that that kind of range? If it's I I like to think of it as 10% as a hurdle rate for revenue growth. And the reason for that is if it's below that or you're into that 4%, they're not really generating real inflation adjusted value on the top line. And so if they're able to demonstrate consistent 10 plus percent growth on the top line, that means that they're able to at least at the minimum flex some pricing power within the business. And that's a key right away. If we're talking about investing checklists, 
Pricing power is everything. If you listen to our podcast, Simon, you'd have a you'd be a millionaire every time I talked about uh, if you got a dollar every time I talked about pricing power. And it is so important. Good businesses have pricing power. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For me, I would say probably the threshold would be 5%. Um, but 5% with an asterisk, it really has to be well priced. So that, like the value, the price I'm paying for the business has to make a whole lot of sense. I'm looking at something like Braden said with 10% plus, then I'll be a bit more flexible on the price. Obviously, I don't want a crazy valuation for just 10% growth, but you can give a little more uh, flexibility in terms of the price you're paying if you're getting more growth. Awesome. So what's next after the revenue growth? Where do we go from there? I can go ahead for the next one. One of the things I'll look at, again, just to get a sense of what type of business I'm dealing with, is I'll just have a look if they're paying a dividend or not. So that's the, that's the one thing I'll look at. Just is it paying a dividend? If so, what's the dividend yield and the payout ratio? Dividend yield, I think you guys uh, talked about it recently. And I know you, ha- you two love dividends and uh, you have a lot of listeners that do as well. I, I love dividends too. So I'll look at the dividend. I'll compare the yield with some of its peers in the industry. And I think that's really important to understand for people because a 5% yield for a REIT, a real estate investment trust, or a pipeline, something like that, that's pretty normal. So that comparable to its peers, there's no red flags there. But if you have a 5% yield on a tech company, then I have all kinds of alarms going in my head because a a tech company paying 5%, they're probably not growing a lot. They're probably just trying to keep investors with that big yield. And the price has probably gone down quite a bit, therefore pushing up the yield. And the payout ratio, that's really important because you want to make sure that dividend is actually sustainable. And I do love to look at the payout ratio, not based on earnings, but based on free cash flow, because that's the actual money coming in and out of the company. And that's a really good indicator because I think, I can't remember your recent episode you were talking about, was it Exxon, one of the oil companies? And you're saying that uh, they were basically fueling the dividend with uh, debt. So you want to avoid that. The super key distinction to look at the difference between a big dividend yield with a tech company and one with, like you said, like a REIT. And like, companies can buy back stock too. For the investors who can take that next step to look at a payout ratio in the cash flow statement, you can have companies... I know it's weird to conceptualize until you've seen it, but you can have companies who are paying the same amount in dollars in a dividend, but they're, the dividend you get as an investor is going up because they're buying back shares. So that's that's a super cool thing to see too. And I like the distinction there between payout ratios it's it's worth looking into when it comes to dip when it comes to dividends for the most part is don't get sucked into a dividend yield this is the number one mistake i see from new investors i think this is by far the number one mistake i see it all the time is going for high yield traps This is a disaster waiting to happen for new investors. And I think it's a valuable lesson. So if you can learn it right away and avoid that as soon as you possibly can, do not get sucked into high 9% plus dividend yields on companies that are basically deteriorating or melting ice cubes. Now you can make the distinction between high quality companies that pay high dividends that's fine for someone who's seeking income. That makes a lot of sense. But if you have a long time horizon, don't be messing around with 10 plus percent dividend yields. They do exist. If you screen for them, you will find them. And they're just a complete waste of time. If you have a long time horizon, we want to own good companies for the future and, and yield traps are not something that I want to mess around with. Yeah, I would agree with that. I remember that GameStop before <laughs> everything happened in in the in early winter, they were pushing out an eight to ten percent dividend yield. I know a lot of people. I saw a lot of people on Seeking Alpha and FinTwit talking about GameStop because of their high y- dividend yield. But yeah, boy, that was a scary thing. Yeah, exactly. Braden, did you want to talk about a few other ones you're looking at? 
Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. The other thing that I would definitely look at just right out of the gate when it comes to a checklist is asking myself really simple questions and really simple questions. One that requires zero accounting skills, zero investing skills, zero really even business know-how, which is this company obviously great. Can I explain in one or two sentences why this company is great? And is it going to be better in the future? And I know it seems so elementary and so simple. And that was one of the first things that one of the most sophisticated and best investors I know taught me when I sat down with him is he said, people get lost in the weeds really quick and forget that we are trying to invest in companies that are going to be bigger, better, more profitable, have more market share, generate more cash, buy back more stock, and generate returns for shareholders in the future. And if I can't easily say that the company is going to be better in five, 10 years, that's really difficult to invest behind that because you are right away going into a company potentially facing structural decline, industry headwinds. It's really difficult as an investor to to put your capital behind that and be and sleep good at night. So I would say right off the gate is just asking myself really simple questions and that will yield surprisingly good results. I believe it. Unpack that just for a second because I think it's easy. I fall victim to it just like anybody else, but to look at a company and feel like you want to buy it already and then put those blinders on and, and not really consider that question. Is it great? Without, you don't have to give us an example of companies that aren't great. <laughs> what would oh, be an example you mentioned? <laughs> I'll be, be my guess. What are examples of companies that are not great? Other You mentioned the industry decline. That's a super big one to avoid. What would be some other examples? Yeah, it was what I was talking about before, which is pricing power. Up here in Canada, if you look at the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, or you look at the Standard & Poor's TSX index, so in, in the US, you're looking at the S&P 500, which is a 500 company index. In here, it's, it's a couple hundred companies. Sometimes people use the TSX 60. It's a smaller market, so there's less security. So we'll, we'll say the TSX 60. If you own the TSX 60, you are heavily concentrated in banking, materials, and energy. Okay, so let's throw aside banking because the Canadian banks are actually amazing profit centers. So Let's look at energy and materials. Now, energy and materials, even if you are the best operator, you're the best well-capitalized, you have the safest balance sheet, you still do not have the ability to decide the price of your product. And that is a structural disadvantage. Let's look at a company like Apple. They basically decide what the price of the iPhone is or this, what we were talking about earlier, $4,000 MacBook Pro I just bought, which seems just completely ridiculous. They decided what it was going to cost in a boardroom. If you think about how advantageous that is compared to a company that has a product and their product is priced based on what the market is willing to pay for it, those two are not equal. So I think that's really important in terms of what a great company and what a not so good company looks like is for the most part, even if you are a great capital allocator, you're the best in your industry. If you don't get to decide your own price, like energy and like materials, it makes it a lot more difficult. Yeah, and just to build on what Braden said, a couple industries for me that, that that would come to mind first, like you just said, oil, because it's commodities, you really don't control that. Tobacco, I know they look really good. We've talked about them on a recent episode as well. They pay a super high yield. It seems pretty sustainable, but you can make a case that over the long term, it'll be a structural decline for the t- tobacco companies. Another one that comes to mind for me would be like classic department stores. Again, you can find some good operators in there, but not sure if the the growth is exactly there going forward. So you can think about it. There's some businesses where 
you can see 5, 10, 15, 20 years that keep growing and growing year over year. And some that you probably just thinking about it, you have some serious question mark if they're, they'll still be alive five or 10 years from now. And we both invest, and I'm pretty sure you guys are like that too, is we invest in the really long term. We're not looking at one or two years in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So I don't want to buy a business that I'm not sure if it's still going to be alive in five years, even though it may look very attractive from a value perspective. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I feel like you were over my shoulder today while I was writing an email talking about why (laughs) pricing power is better than commodity investing, you know, for the long term, right? Because when you're looking at commodities, you have to buy and sell at the right time. And that's, it's hard to market time, very hard to market time. So those are both very good answers. Um, so Brandon, maybe I'll shoot back to you because you mentioned you had some really simple questions. So the question was, is this company great? So what would be another question? So when it comes to other simple questions is sometimes qualitative, sometimes quantitative when I mean quantitative, I, let's, I'm talking about do they have proven growth of sales and free cash flow, which maybe we can dive into. I don't know how much you guys talk about free cash flow on the show here, but I think that we could, we could maybe talk about that. And then we need to look at the moat when it comes to asking simple questions. The moat is what defines a great company. It's their ability to keep their position in the market, fend off competitors, and grow ultimately without needing to invest a lot of capital. Like Sometimes these companies are so capital light just because of the nature of their mode and other people innovating on top of them and driving more business. So I think that's some simple questions to ask yourself too is in the competitive landscape, how defensible, how durable is this company? And it doesn't have to be, like I said, something where you're a professional accountant and you can look through the statements. It's really more simple than that. It's 
can they be durable even as new competitors enter the space, whether it's durable from regulators like government or new competition? I think that's an important question to ask yourself. Those are great questions. We have touched on free cash flow here or there. Be curious your take. Pretend I'm a nine-year-old girl or something. Uh, how would you explain free cash flow to me? Sure thing. Okay. <laughs> Andrew's a nine-year-old girl, and we are talking free cash flow. So free cash flow, how do I put this really simply? So what you are trying to do is you are trying to make up for some of the weird, I don't know if I can call them mistakes, but weird nuances in accounting. So when you come up with what net com- net income is or profits or earnings, these are all the same things. So when it comes to net income, you are able to, with accounting, manipulate those numbers in a way that may not be a true representation of the actual cash being generated from the business. So with free cash flow, you are adding back some of these non-cash items like amortization, like depreciation. And then, so we're we're taking that out. And then we're going to add back that capital expenditures because those do really matter. For instance, if a company needs to invest in building a new plant, it'll go into a capital expenditure And that doesn't make any sense. That cost matters in terms of them being able to grow their business and maintain their operations. So we need to put that CapEx back in there. Really, at the end of the day, without getting too into the accounting, is we are trying to adjust for the amount of actual cash that the business is extracting from their operations And we ultimately come up with a a number that everyone agreed on, which is called free cash flow. And it works, man. It it is finance nirvana, if you will. And that's why people love it so much. Yeah, I I don't do evaluation without looking at the free cash flow. So I like the way you mentioned capital expenditure and CapEx. And maybe an example of that would be an energy company. And they have huge expenses that they have to make to say we're going to drill a hole in the ground that's going to make huge machinery costs. So that's your capital expenditures. Maybe give an example of a company that doesn't have huge capital expenditures like that. And so they have better free cash flow than like an oil company would. Sure thing. If you listen to all my appearances here on the Investing for Beginners podcast, it wouldn't be a normal episode without me talking about Visa and Visa. Visa. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was coming, right? Also, another thing, I noticed Canadians call it Visa, almost like with a Z, and Americans call it Visa. Yeah, anyways, just a quick note there. We need a referee. So, we need a neutral party here. Yeah, we, unfortunately, it's too It's an American here. company, so it's you guys win. It's definitely Visa. Anyways. You'll give us that. We appreciate it. Yeah, so... When it comes to Visa and MasterCard, the payments rails, these companies generate worldwide leading free cash flow margins. I'm talking about a sustained more than 40, sometimes 45% free cash flow margins because the business is really just so capital light. I was listening to an interview with a, a guy who joined the Visa team because Visa acquired his startup, his fintech startup. And then he joined the Visa team and he's talking about it on this podcast. He's like, what is everyone doing? This company runs itself. Like everyone can go to sleep and just not show up to work. Everyone's on the golf course and Visa's still making money. Visa's still operating. It is a completely capital light, low input, high moat business. That is an example of a company generating tons of free cash flow because all the costs when it comes to CapEx the network's already built. So that's just a cash cow. And then in terms of everything that goes into net income right off the top too, those margins are insane. And it's just a cash flowing machine. If you look at the the statements, it is mind bending the first time you see them. Yeah. Yeah. No, just to add, I wasn't sure who was going to talk next. So I got to had a good moment there. I, I, Dave, I, figured, Dave, I figured Dave was going to say something because I know he, I, 
He's in the Visa rabbit hole right now. Oh, yes. I am very much in the rabbit hole. I sent Andrew a message today saying, hey, I'm stuck in the fintech hole and I don't think I can get out. I've dug myself so deep. It's crazy. They're they're definitely powerful businesses. And obviously, like I think Braden and I, like I won't shut up about free cash flow. I'll be honest (laughs) because it's a really good metric because you'll see some companies that may have negative net income. But then they have really good cash flow and vice versa. You'll see companies that look profitable at first glance and then will have negative free cash flow. And you have a company like Berkshire who, like even Buffett says, that don't look at our net income because it makes no sense because of the accounting principles where they have to either have unrealized gains or losses on their income statement, which puts everything out of whack. So I think that's why it's a really important metric. But one other thing that I look at, and it's really two ways that are pretty easy to do for uh, for beginners, is just have a look a bit how management conducts themselves. And two things I like to look at first is Glassdoor ratings. So Glassdoor, for people who are not aware, is just a website where employees rate their companies and their CEO and how happy they are at the company. So you always want to see those high ratings. Obviously, make sure you have a pretty good sample size. If there's only 10 10 people that went on there, it may be uh, not very accurate. But if you have hundreds or thousands of ratings, that's always an indicator I like to look at. And I will always listen to at least three annual recordings or annual earnings release earnings calls the the earnings calls yeah it's my french i was uh, looking for the word but i'll (laughs) listen to at least three three years of earnings calls the annual earnings calls just to get a sense if uh, management is actually delivering on what they're promising so the more you can listen to whether it's three four five six years that's good but three, because I can get a good sense if management is promising something and they're delivering on it. Because you'll have management teams that will be promising things from year to year and they're never delivering. So that's another thing that's pretty easy to do. You just put it on your phone, listen to it, and then you take notes while you're listening. Yeah, I love to do that. And one of the things that I've noticed the more that I've listened to them is you tend to trust the CEOs or the management of companies that don't sit there and read you a script for 45 minutes and then take 15 minutes of analyst calls. Okay, I could have just read that, guys. Sometimes when you see the the people that just will answer questions, I think it was a Lockheed Martin, I think, did like a, a five-minute presentation and then opened it up analyst calls for the next hour. And I, I have found that companies that do that, I'm more open to listening to what the CEO has to say because they're actually talking about things they know as opposed to just reading something that God knows who wrote it. It's funny you point that out because when it comes to the tone of voice you were talking about or just their excitement around the company mm-hmm. is at the beginning of every conference call, earnings call, there will be an operator that says basically, you know, that don't sue us type stuff. <laughs> all the legal jargon they have to Yeah, say. yeah, all the lawyerese talk. If I don't hear a change of tone and voice when the CEO and the CFO start talking, I'm <laughs> right. concerned. Yeah. If it is still that same monotone voice, I'm like, get out of here. And that brings it to another thing is, as we talk about this as well, like Simon and I talk about this a lot, which is founder-led public companies are incredible. The success rate of them, so good. They have skin in the game They've built this company from the ground up. It's everything to them. Sometimes they don't even pay themselves. Like some of these guys are just cut from a different cloth when it comes to founder led public companies. And the results speak for themselves. Jeff Bezos marched his company to more than one and a half trillion dollars before he stepped down. Mark Zuckerberg is what, 37, 36 years old, running a trillion dollar company. Slacker. Yeah, I know. Get to work, Mark. Uh, that is something I like to see when it when the founder is still running their company and still wakes up every day excited to run. You just have someone immediately in your court as a shareholder. Yeah, think about Buffett. The dude's 91 now, and he's still running Berkshire. I'm going to be happy if I can just get up from bed and walk to my couch when I'm 91. <laughs> no and, kidding. And the dude is still running a $500 billion company. It's just And Munger, insane. too. And the Munger's yeah. 96, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just it's insane. Uh, yeah, kudos to them. But I think that's a great point is looking for people, looking for companies that the, the founder has still got his skin in the game and still got a hand in what's going on with the company. 
I noticed we haven't talked about valuation at all. And that seems to be lost these days, especially with new investors who you can't blame them. They're caught up in the headlines. A lot of people started opening brokerage accounts, discount brokerages during the whole like GameStop thing, or even during the pandemic when people were sent home. There is a new wave of retail investors and self-directed investors, which I do not mean to have a negative sentiment around it. It is amazing. I think that that's perfect. The days of people paying high management fees for mutual funds that underperform the S&P 500 need to be gone. Like It's (laughs) dinosaur 101. So it's a really good thing, but at the same time, it's really important that people remember that we're trying to buy companies at least a fair price. This doesn't mean you're trying to buy companies at eight times earnings that are not growing the balance sheet sucks, the you know, the management's a revolving door. That's not the idea either. But being able to buy companies and pay a reasonable price for them. And we can talk about maybe what a reasonable price looks like, but not overpaying is is probably really important. Terry Smith from Fundsmith, one of the one of the great investors, he says, buy great companies, don't overpay, do nothing. And that's a really simple framework and it works. I would be curious what you define as a fair price. I'm sure people are wondering too. Yeah, for a fair price, it's always relative. You have to, and we were talking about that earlier about revenue growth and Braden said 10% kind of threshold and I said 5%. But again, that all comes down to valuation. So you have a company that's uh, growing at 25, 30% uh, a year, it may be profitable, it may not be. But if it's profitable, you may paying 30, 40 times earnings is probably something that's pretty reasonable for a company that's growing that quickly. And especially if their sales are growing that quickly, and so are earnings. But at the same time, if you have a company that you're paying a super high premium, and we're seeing that, especially in the, since uh, the pandemic started, we're seeing these uh, tech stocks. A lot of them have good businesses, I would say, but you're seeing like 40, 50 times sales, 60 times sales, whatever the business is. And they are growing very quickly. A lot of them are growing at doubling the top line every year. They're still potentially losing money. But we've talked about this on our podcast before. What happens with these high valuation is as soon as the growth slows down, they could still be growing very quickly. But if you're growing at 100% year over year, and then all of a sudden it slows down to only 50%, if the valuation is sky high, it's going to take a haircut. And it's really important to what just to build on what Braden was saying we have a lot of new retail investors that started investing during the pandemic because people lost their jobs. They were getting government checks. I know in the US, you had that. In Canada, we had similar programs where people lost their jobs and they started investing. And essentially, the market have, as a whole gone up nonstop since the big drop in March of 2020. And I think that's a big word of caution for new investors listening here. The markets don't always go up. If you've been investing for at least three, four, five years, you've seen 20, 30%, if not more drops from your investments. And it's really important to pay that fair price. And I know, Braden, you'll want to add a bit more on that. With certain types of metrics, you can look at when you want to pay a fair price. Yeah. So we talk about don't pay too high of a multiple. What that means is not paying a high multiple is a multiple of their sales or a multiple of their earnings or a multiple of their EBITDA. Those are various things you could look at. Don't don't pay too high of a price to the to their book value, for instance. Obviously, this is all relative with how good the company is from a you know durability perspective and how fast are they growing. A company that trades at 25 times earnings and isn't growing at all, I think is crazy expensive, even if it's below the Schiller PE for the entire market. I still think it's expensive. If you look at a company today, like Google, which may be the best business on the entire planet, you're looking at, or or even Microsoft's in this category, Amazon as well. If you look at these companies, 
they are growing their top line and profits at rates like a small tech startup. Google reported like 64% revenue growth. And like, how? Like, it's a $2 trillion company. It makes no sense. And it's trading at 22 times next year's earnings. That's not expensive. So it really does come down to compared to its growth, compared to its business quality. And it's a rule of thumb thing. If if you're hearing podcasts as a beginner, or you're hearing people talk about investings and they're talking about earnings multiples, the stock's 30 times PE. Don't worry, it'll come to you. Some of these like rule of thumbs. Now, when I hear a, a multiple on a stock based on how fast it's growing, I can quickly in my head think of if it would be an investable idea. This stuff comes down to just practice and learning and just diving into managing your own money at the end of the day. Do those rule of thumbs change over time? Let's say somebody happens to be listening to this like three, four years from now. Do those rule of thumbs change over time and what would make them change? They absolutely do change because if we look at the Bible of value investing, the intelligent investor by Ben Graham, he said, you screen and buy stocks that trade for less than 15 times PE. And Graham was the first to tell you that that wouldn't work anymore. He's not with us anymore, but he was the first to come out and tell people that wouldn't work anymore. And he kept adjusting the goalpost in his revisions of the book. Same with Phil Fisher. These guys were the first to tell you, hey, we're on like the seventh revision of this book and you just can't buy great businesses at 14 times earnings anymore. And if you have over the last 10 years bought low PE stocks, you've just flat out underperformed. You've underperformed because you haven't owned the stuff that we were talking about before, which is the Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard. You haven't owned any of them and you've just straight up underperformed. So I think that it does matter in terms of keeping up with you know the market in general and like those goalposts do change. What doesn't change is that these guys were investing in great companies at reasonably fair prices. That didn't that never changed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what Buffett has been preaching for 60 plus years is buy a great company at a reasonable price and everything else will take care of itself. I think Charlie Munger said if you buy a company like Costco, it doesn't really matter. It didn't really matter at what price you bought it, you still are going to come out great. And you look at the share price of the company now, it's pushing 500 bucks a share. Crushing it. It just, but you look at their numbers across the board from 10 years ago to today, it's still, it's just cranking on. It's just amazing. Costco is an insanely good business, by the way. Once you go down the rabbit hole of, yeah, you know what? I'm a shopper there. I'm a customer. I get it. The lineups are huge to, whoa, they're really onto something here, I think is a impressive uh, thing that they've accomplished as a company. They're optimized for low gross margins. What retailer does that? That's not normal. And that's the model. So once you wrap your head around what they do, it's a, whoa, this is a really good company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, with your, your fancy pants, uh, new MacBook, I don't know if this is below you or anything, but <laughs> if you get a chance sure, to try sure. the rotisserie chicken, <laughs> oh baby, it's than good. Any other rotisserie chicken you'll ever have. I've tried it. It's good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. I've had it. I, I went last night, so I actually uh, <laughs> some market research. It's still good, huh? Yeah. That is, yeah, that is actually, some prime market research. <laughs> you can even make a case they were probably uh, a precursor to software as a service when you think mm-hmm. of their membership model, and they have right. such mm-hmm. a great retention rate. And that's what Braden was saying. Their their margins are super low when it comes to actually selling goods. But then the membership that people pay and renew every year is amazing. I think mm-hmm. they're, I can't remember on top of my head, but I think it's in the 90s in terms of uh, high 90s in terms of people renewing their membership and they're increasing that price over time as well. So, yeah. I, I read something not too long ago that Jeff Bezos actually based some of his prime um, goals, the prime membership, on what Costco was doing because he realized that it was such a great business. What they've done is so incredible from a management perspective. They were the first really big, large company to ignore Wall Street. And that's important. They ignored Wall Street. They There are three things that companies need to look at. 
shareholders, employees, and customers. That's like the stakeholder three-legged stool. And most companies, most public companies today, CEOs are very incentivized to just look after shareholders. Costco flipped the book. They said shareholders are last. They said shareholders will be rewarded if we take care of our employees and we take care of our customers. We're going to give our customers the lowest possible cost, the best possible product, and we're going to pay our employees and incentivize them way better than any other retailer. And look what the result is. Shareholders have been abundantly rewarded along the way. And to circle it back to back to what we talked about at the beginning, is this a great business and do they have pricing power? People are lining up to pay their subscription fees no matter what the price is. Simon, you said 90% renewal. That's some significant pricing power as they continue to make that subscription go up. Simple when you think of it that way. Yeah, exactly. I've had my membership, I think... Since I moved out of my parents when I was 23, so I'm 36 now. So it's been 13 years and I, I've renewed every year. And before that, I was using my parents' membership when I, I lived at their place. Yeah. So I think that's a They're that's just a getting started example. in China yeah. too. They're just mm-hmm. getting started in China. So any last things here on the, the checklist that we didn't cover? And any parting words for beginners looking to build their own checklist? I have here just really know what you own. I think is just 101 and probably has to be discussed is you got to know what you own. I talk to people all the time. There's the classic, you're out at the bar and your buddy tells you about this new whisper stock. It's this high flying mining company. They've just touched some lithium batteries. It has military grade applications. And you're like, okay, whatever. They have no idea sometimes. That would actually be a good sales pitch. They'll start talking about the business. But when they when you hear talk about it's $5, I think it can really go to $10. What is the company you're investing in? Seriously, you have to know what you own because you're going to face volatility. Every stock moves up and down. And when you see a 10, 20% drawdown, if you don't know it, you're not going to know if it's an opportunity or you should be selling the stock. So you cannot be investing in companies. You just basically don't know what they do. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds elementary. People do it all the time. Yeah. And just, and we've talked about this before. And just to build on what Braden said, know what you own and investing in individual companies is not necessarily for everyone. It does take time. You have to like to do it. You have to want to put the time into it. And there's some great low cost index ETFs out there that people can invest in if they still want that stock market exposure and not necessarily put all the time that all four of us would put into researching companies. And I think as I got older is definitely knowing myself and I've reduced the number of holdings that I actually have for that reason, because I just don't have the time to follow all of them as much as I wanted to. So I have a bit of a hybrid portfolio between index ETFs and some individual stocks. So I think it's for beginners, that's a good lesson is just know yourself, know how much time you're willing to put in there. And if you're willing to know those businesses, stay on top of them, then you should do well if uh, you do that due diligence and research. Peter Lynch, the famous hedge fund manager and author of One Up on Wall Street. And you, investors should read those books, by the way. I'm sure you've talked about them on your podcast. Yeah. Is he has this awesome monologue of how investors will be the same the same person will spend hours researching some new dishwasher just to save a few bucks or make sure it's the best dishwasher around the same day throw their life savings in a stock they just heard about <laughs> this is happens all the time so just be aware of that yeah that's great advice that's that's all great stuff. You, I really enjoyed listening to all the checklists and all the items and everything and the passion and the knowledge you guys are sharing with everybody. With our listeners, it's awesome as also as well as the, the listeners for your show as well. So we greatly appreciate you guys taking the time to come talk to us today. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. So any parting words you guys would like to share with our guests? Where where can they where can they find out more about you guys? 
We're the, obviously, the Canadian Investor Podcast. We have, for most weeks, we have two episodes a week, on one on Monday, one on Thursday. You can also find us on Twitter at CDN underscore investing. My personal handle is Fiat underscore Iceberg and Braden's personal handle. Brado Capital. <laughs> Had That's to give cool. you a little uh, insert. You. Right you're, you're like, I forget what it is. <laughs> and yeah, no, come check out the show because... Dave and Andrew, we're doing a little home and away here recording. Dave and Andrew are going to come on our show as well, and that'll be out in the next few weeks. Both shows obviously provide a lot of value. We talk about different stuff, but at the end of the day, whether you're a new investor, a skilled investor, it doesn't hurt to look at the basics. Like we're talking about asking ourselves some really elementary questions can be the most important part of any investing checklist, whether you're investing for one year or 20 years. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for coming and joining us today. We really appreciate it. And with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. Everybody go out there and listen, enjoy, have a great day, invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on a safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.